All right, if you would uh, turn with me in your Bibles to Luke in chapter 8. And we will be uh, starting in verse 26 today of Luke chapter 8. And once you are there in your scripture, if you could please stand and join me for the reading of God's word. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house, but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him, and he was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles. But he would break the bonds and be driven by the demons into the desert. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? And he said, Legion. For many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. This is the word of the Lord. As you can be seated. As we are continuing now our study in the gospel according to Luke, uh, we find ourselves in a kind of interesting set of uh, events, an interesting narrative, uh, one that happens just after the events uh, unfolded last week where we saw Jesus calming the storm. And I think an apt uh, summary or a, a main theme of this text is a desperate man in a desperate state. A desperate man in a desperate state. And as soon as Jesus gets off of the boat, the very first person we're introduced to, no, no sooner has he stepped off the boat than Luke introduces us to this man from the Gerasenes who has, uh, who's reaching out and, and meeting with Jesus, um, seemingly driven by uh, demonic possession. And there are many strange things uh, that go on in a text like this. Uh, for us as uh, 21st century readers, there are many things that we have assumptions of and biases towards. Uh, we we are okay with some of the miracles of Jesus, um, but then the demonic and the exorcisms and things like that, we, we tend to shy away from. Um, but this text uh, revolves around this, this cosmic supernatural conflict that we see between uh, Jesus and then the, the many demons that possess 
uh, this man. So as Luke is unfolding this text for us, one of the things we, we always have to remind ourselves of is the fact that Luke is building his case from the very time that he started writing the gospel till this point, and he'll continue to do so, and he's building a case about the identity and the nature and the character of Jesus. And one of the things he starts his gospel with is these regal, royal affirmations that Jesus is descended of David, he's, he has this lineage, he's going to be a, an announced coming Messiah, and he gets even a messenger that runs before him. And then as he continues to build his case, he starts by introducing us to the miraculous. Jesus is capable of healing people instantaneously of disease. He's capable of exercising demons without a second thought. He teaches and preaches powerfully in the synagogues. And then we kind of get this pause uh, in the narrative and almost like a, a re repetition of many of the miracles only amplified. So Jesus starts by teaching in his Sermon on the Plain. And just like he taught in the synagogue, except now it's a more robust, a more full-fledged sermon about what his kingdom is like. And just like he was doing he healing miracles in the past where he's taking care of the supernatural forces and healing people of sickness and disease, he's doing that in, in these narratives as well. Uh, last time calming the, the, super, uh, the storm supernaturally in an instant. Um, and then here in this text, uh, we have a repetition of, of the encounter that Jesus had with the leper uh, early on in Luke's gospel, where he encounters a man who's unclean, who's alone, who's isolated, who's in desperate need of help, and whom Jesus is able to help. Except now, Luke is raising the stakes because he's building his case. And so he's telling us not only can Jesus deal with an unclean man with leprosy and heal him, he can also deal with an unclean man who has a, many, a great many number of afflictions that are uh, assailing him. And it is in a desperate state that we find this man, much how we found the leper earlier on in Luke's gospel. We see uh, right off the bat in verse 26 that Jesus sails uh, to the Gerasenes, a country opposite of Galilee. And when Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. And for a long time, he had worn no clothes and had not lived in a house, but rather he had lived among the tombs. Now, this uh, description of the man tells us a lot of information, and knowing the context of uh, first century Palestine, it will tell us even more information about what's going on in this text. The first thing to note is that Jesus is uh, a, a Jewish religious leader. Uh, he's a controversial religious leader, but nevertheless, he's, uh, he's been taught and raised under the rabbinic teaching, the rabbinic law. And so a man who wears no clothes, who walks around naked, is an unclean person, not someone you want to be around. You amplify that with the fact that this man is, is not suitable for any habitation. He's been cast out of a city. And you now double the shame that is going on in the interaction and the circumstance surrounding this person. Uh, and then we find not only does he not live in the city or not live in a house, but he actually dwells among the tombs. He dwells among the dead. And for a Jewish person to dwell among the dead or to interact with someone in a place where bodies are buried would be to make them unclean. Similarly, in, earlier in Luke's gospel, when Jesus is interacting with the leper, you see that there's all these, all these stigmas that Jesus is overcoming by approaching the leper, by coming close to him, by, by touching him to heal him. And Jesus is, is in very much like fashion entering into an unclean space, entering into uh, an interaction with an unclean man. Uh, and uh, we, are, as readers, are, are following this and hopefully picking up uh, almost the scandal of what's going on. And when uh, this man sees Jesus, he cries out and he falls down before Jesus and he says, cries out with a loud voice, uh, this, this common question, you kind of see it all over scripture, when Jesus 
uh, when Jesus is encountering demons, the demons often say something like this, uh, what have you to do with me? Uh, or what have we to do with one another? It can be translated a great many number of ways. Uh, the, the very word-for-word -word way to do it is uh, what to me and to you. It's a, a euphemistic expression of what relationship do I have with you in this matter. It's actually uh, one time used by Jesus when uh, his, his mother is asking him to do the, the miracle where he turns water into wine. And his first response is, is what to me and to you, where he's saying it's, it's not my time. And in, in this context, though, the, the demon is, uh, or the demons are talking to Jesus and essentially saying, what have we to do with one another? And notice, last week, I, I ended on the question, kind of the main thesis of the question, who is Jesus? What, what is he all about? And that's the question the disciples ask. Who is this that even the winds and the waves obey him? And notice here, when the demon is asking Jesus to step away from them, to not associate with them, they actually answer the question that the disciples have asked in the previous setting. They identify him as Jesus, son of the Most High God. That's interesting, because in the Gospels, none of his disciples have yet to make such a profession about him. And this is now the second demon that has correctly identified Jesus in Luke's Gospel. And there, there's so many things to be said about that. Uh, something that we can often reflect on is uh, almost the theological orthodoxy of, of the demons. Um, you won't find demons who don't believe in, uh, in hell. You won't find demons who don't believe in God. You won't find demons who don't believe in the deity of Jesus Christ. Uh, you won't find demons like that because they are theologically orthodox. They live in the reality of Christ and his kingdom and his superiority over them. And even though they reject that superiority, even though they hate all that they know, they nevertheless correctly identify Jesus here. When speaking with him out of the mouth of this man, they identify him not only as Jesus, but also as the son of the most high God. And for them, this is not a neutral stance because the very next thing that they say after they ask him not to approach them and they identify him, they say, I beg you, do not torment me. And when we, then we get a parenthetical statement in verse 29 about why they're asking that question. And they say, uh, and the, Luke tells us, parenthetically, the preceding event was that Jesus had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man because this unclean spirit was afflicting the man. He tells us that almost in parentheses. Uh, he says, for many a time it had seized him and he was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles. Uh, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. So Jesus knows the affliction of the man. Luke is kind of filling us in on the information. And Jesus has commanded the, the demon to come out of the man. And so then the demon in response is pleading with him, essentially, what do we have to do with one another? Uh, please don't torment me, uh, asking Jesus to get away and be away from him. And then we have this kind of interesting exchange in the conflict uh, where Jesus is then going to ask him, what is your name? And it's strange the answer that the demon gives because he doesn't really give him a name, uh, more like a description. And he says the name of the demon, he says, is Legion. And then Luke, uh, again, fills in some information. Why does Jesus uh, ask him for the name? And then what does the name Legion have to do with this? Uh, and Luke tells us that the reason he names himself Legion is not because that's his name, uh, but because many demons had entered him. So this is not a name of a demon. 
this is not uh, a proper name, as it were. It's more of a description of, once again, the desperate condition of the man who we've already encountered. So not only is he demon-oppressed, not only is he outside of the city in an unclean place, not only is he unclean in almost every respect, but he's also possessed not by one demon, which would be plenty, but by many unclean spirits. Many demons are in this man. And now we've raised the stakes of the conflict because when Jesus has exercised demons in the past, he's exercised one demon at a time, maybe several in a day, but really only encountering them one at a time. That's so far what we've been seeing in Luke's gospel. Now, Luke is going to show us that Jesus actually can handle demons no matter how many of them is he facing at one time. There's no number of them that will overcome his power. And here we see that there are many demons who are in this man. And that's funny because just a moment ago, those, that whole horde of demons, that legion of demons, is begging Jesus to have mercy on them, to spare them, and to leave them alone. Which means they know, once again, they're orthodox, they know they don't stand a chance when facing off against God's son. And they beg him in verse 31, and they beg him not to command them to depart into the abyss, but rather they, they ask for, uh, for the permission to go into pigs on the side of the hill who are grazing nearby this region. And there's a whole lot of things to be said about this. The first uh, thing to take note of is when the demons say uh, they're begging him not to uh, cast them into the abyss, there's a whole lot of uh, things being assumed there. One is the, the presence of the abyss. And the second thing, which, which we might be wondering is, well, what is the abyss referencing? What is the abyss talking about? What is this thing that the demon is so scared about? Or in this case, the, all the demons in consensus are very afraid of going to this location. So much so that they're begging uh, Jesus. And there, there's a whole lot of things we could say about the abyss. Um, likely, it is referring not to uh, the temporal state where demons would reside um, or, or a state of uh, temporal punishment, but likely it's referring to the eschatological punishment, the, the punishment at the end of time that demons and all in rebellion towards God will face. And we know this because if you were to take this same account, this same narrative, and you were to go to the other synoptic gospels that tell it, uh, they actually say something to the effect of, it is not even yet the time for these things to take place. And so they're challenging him both on his appearance and on the timing of the things that are happening. And so it is likely the case that they're not referring to a temporal punishment, but to an eternal punishment, which is elsewhere described in scripture as hell or the lake of fire or Gehenna. And so the demons are likely referring to such a location of final punishment and torment. So they beg him, they say, you know, any place is better than that place. And so they're not going to be picky about whatever that other place is. So they're saying, there's a herd of pigs over on the side there. Let's go over there. And at this point in time, uh, when we encounter weird things in the text, like the demons possessing pigs, we need to be able to remain focused on what the main thrust of the text is. What is the main point being conveyed by the author? Because if we get distracted and we start asking questions, well, uh, can demons possess animals? You know, what exactly does that look like? How exactly does that work? Why can't the demons roam freely elsewhere? And you know, why do they have to go into pigs? Why can't they just roam about and find someone else to possess? There's so many questions that we could ask, but none of them are the questions Luke is trying to answer. None of them are the questions that Luke is going to answer for us. What, what Luke is telling us, though, is that there's this place, the abyss, that all of the demons want to avoid. 
and they're willing to take any other host that would have them. And also, we're told that it's a large herd in verse 32, which further emphasizes the thing that was said earlier, which is that there are many demons who have possessed this man. Now, I'm not saying that there's a strong correlation between only one demon per pig or something like that, but Luke is emphasizing for us that if, the, if all the demons are asking for the large herd to go into this herd, it's underscoring the, the vast number of demons that are present already in the man and who have possessed him. So Luke is once again going back and underlining that same idea. And uh, the last piece that uh, may further uh, underscore this, which is more Jewish context, is the fact that pigs are considered unclean animals. Now, the area that they're in is an area of either non-practicing Jews or Gentile territory, which means that the, the pigs are being raised for consumption, probably by Roman guards or by non-practicing Jews. So they're going to be eaten at some point, but this herd of pigs for a Jewish person who's faithful to the, the Torah, who's faithful to the law they've been given, would recognize pigs instantaneously as an unclean animal. And so Luke is telling us not only are the demons unclean, not only is the man unclean, but the demons are requesting to go into an animal that is unclean. It's, it's further emphasizing the, uh, the uncleanness, as it were, of the situation. And uh, what's interesting then is that last sentence of verse 32, that he, being Jesus, gave them permission. It's, a, it's an outstanding uh, amount of theology conveyed in only a couple of words. Um, and we've kind of seen it being laid out before us already. Uh, demons are not able to operate apart from the will of God. All of the supernatural forces and afflictions and uh, broken things in this world are not able to operate apart from God being sovereign over them. At the end of the day, the demons and the unclean spirits and Satan himself and all that is broken in the world has to ask God for permission to do whatever it wants to do. And they know this, and they've probably already been aware of this because as soon as they encounter Jesus, they're begging him for essentially additional permission, additional time, additional leeway. They know that they can't overpower him. They know that they can't stand against him in any really substantive way. So they're simply asking for permission very similar to uh, the early chapters of Job where the one who seeks to afflict Job uh, needs first and foremost permission from God to go and afflict Job. It's very striking how now the demons, the supernatural forces that need permission from God, need to go to Jesus for permission. If you're a Jewish person, that won't be lost on you. That uh, Job tells us that the demons need to answer to God and here the demons are asking Jesus for permission. It's a, it's a reference to or a statement about the deity of Christ, that he is the one who is able to give permission to the demons to do things. And this uh, funnels into uh, a bigger picture that we've seen so far in the life of Jesus, which is that while he encounters uh, opposition from supernatural, while he encounters opposition from the Pharisees, while he encounters resistance, uh, it's kind of resistance that meets him but doesn't really deter him or stop him in any way. He's, he's kind of like an unstoppable force going forward. And while the demons and, and Satan and everyone is trying to resist him, uh, no one is really making any headway in that regard. Uh, when he was preaching in the synagogue, the demon cries out and tells him uh, to stop preaching. And uh, Jesus has no problem dealing with that demon. Um, and so we've, we've already seen this kind of theme present in the life of Jesus.
And so when Jesus gives them permission to go from the man into the herd, then we're told uh, a kind of narrative summary of the things that take place. And in one verse, verse 33, we're told that the demons leave the man, enter the herd, and drown the herd into the lake that is nearby. Now, why the demons would enter the herd and then drive the herd to the lake is, again, a, a point of speculation, something we, we don't want to focus on because we want to focus on the thing that Luke is arguing for us by telling us these events. Something that uh, you should pick up on, and you, you might have picked up on last week uh, when Jesus is calming the storm. Uh, the storm, waters, those are uh, things in the Psalms that are re- resembling chaos, resembling kind of the great unknown, the great place of punishment, the great place of rebellion. That's the symbol of water in, in Jewish literature. And so when Jesus calms the water, and it, and it is still, he's calming all of the supernatural rebellion and, and even physical rebellion in the world. And then here, when, when the demons are able to enter the pigs, they, they go from, from the place where they enter the pigs, and the pigs drown into the water. It's a, as, as one commentator said, it's, it's almost a, a little taste, a little foreshadowing of them being cast into the abyss because now they're, they're drowning into the place of chaos and abandonment and, and darkness. And there, uh, there's uh, many other ways to speculate about why the demons drive the pigs into the water. One commentator uh, speculates that it is in fact an effort of the demons to uh, nullify the ministry of Jesus that he's potentially going to have in this area. And you'll see in the kind of preceding verses or the, the, the verses that follow that it is in fact the case that because the herd drowns in the lake, that now this whole region has become hostile to the ministry of Jesus and whatever other ministry might be had there. So it might be the demons in some way trying to oppose Jesus by drowning essentially the entire food source of that region in one swoop and for them to try to pin that on Jesus by association. Either way, both of those are just a matter of speculation. The main thrust is that the demons have been cast out of the man, they were given permission to go into the herd, and essentially they're, they're no longer a factor in the story. They are drowned or gone or, or somewhere off away. And now the focus shifts to, uh, to the response of the people in the region as well as the man who received the healing. So if you, if you were to follow the flow of Luke's uh, parables whenever he's telling us stories or narratives or accounts of the life of Jesus, he always starts with the event that happened, the kind of significant climactic point, and then kind of this reflection, response, thought-provoking thing that occurs. Uh, When Jesus squares off against the Pharisees, it's the matter of the Sabbath, and Jesus says, uh, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath, and that's where the narrative ends. It's a thought point for the reader. Uh, in the last event, it was, who is this that even the winds and the waves obey him? The thought point for the reader. And now the thought point for the reader is uh, almost a reflection on two different responses from two different groups. The people of the territory and the man who was healed. And so the first thing we're told is the response of the people who have observed and are going to uh, relay this information. So this is the herdsmen. We see them in verse 34. That essentially were responsible for these pigs. So they've got a firsthand account of seeing all this take place. It would have been quite a scene to see uh, a bunch of demons exercised all at one time and an entire herd of pigs running into the water. And so they're, they're going to run, they're going to flee, and they're going to report all that they've seen essentially to the city and all of the surrounding country. 
And then the people, when they hear this news, they come out to see, you know, what has transpired. Are these things so? They're going to come and investigate for themselves. And when they come to investigate for themselves, uh, you'll notice that they find Jesus. And what they see is the man whom everyone knows is unclean, unwell, demon-possessed, the, the talk of the town. And they see him sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed in his right mind. And these people respond with fear. Now notice that uh, that statement about the man is not to be lost on us. Uh, Luke is choosing his words very carefully there. This man is at the feet of Jesus. Now he's clothed, no longer naked. And uh, he's of right mind, or another way to translate that is he's calm, in the same way that the sea was calm uh, when Jesus uh, stilled it in its rebellion. And these people come to see this wonderful miracle that has taken place, and rather than being uh, rejoicing in the power that they have seen, rather than thanking God for the, the healing that has taken place, rather than responding uh, in faith and asking Jesus to come into their town and heal other people of their ills, the response of these people is fear. Fear of Jesus, fear of his power, um, fear of any number of things, but the point is they're not responding as they ought to. The demons respond in fear towards Jesus and beg him to go away from them. Uh, but Jesus is coming to save people. And so it is, it is a strange response for people to be afraid of him, especially after he's demonstrated his power. But we often fear the things that we don't understand. And the disciples have already demonstrated fear in Jesus uh, when he calmed the sea. And so we know that this is not a response that's out of the depth of the human uh, response towards the divine. When God reveals himself, the, the response is often fear on the human end. But this is not a fear that is reverent. This is not a fear that we're to understand as an appropriate kind of fear. Because Luke is going to make clear for us, this fear is a fear that doesn't lead towards faith and reverence and uh, fidelity and obedience. This is a fear that leads to rejection and pushing God at arm's length and keeping him away. And you'll see that uh, there in the next verse, in verse 36. Uh, those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed, and then all of the people in the surrounding country, the Gerasenes, asked him to depart from them, for they were seized, now he's going to emphasize it, with great fear. So this is a fear that is not a healthy kind of fear. This is not a reverent, awful response to God. Rather, this is a, a, a truly uh, fearful response, a phobia kind of response towards the divine. And now uh, they're asking Jesus to leave, to go away from their land. And Jesus has essentially no sooner touched down, healed this man, and now he's being asked to leave and to go away. It's quite a strange response because when he's ministering in Jerusalem and he does his miracles, there's a great crowd that follows him and they ask him to stay. And so th we're, we're told that this country is wholesale rejecting the ministry and the healing and the works of Jesus demonstrated in this man. And they're, they're rejecting any kind of further opportunity for ministry. They're not asking theological questions. They're not wondering or reflecting about these things. They're simply rejecting all that has been revealed to them and telling Jesus to go and leave them alone. And so Jesus obliges. He goes, gets back in the boat, and Luke summarizes that he returned. So that's, that closes the first set of responses. The reason Luke uh, doesn't tell this in a chronological order is because he's first focusing on the response of the one group of people, the incorrect response, the fearful response, and then he's going to parenthetically summarize the response of the man who was found sitting at Jesus' feet, who had been freed and liberated from his demon possession. And so he tells it kind of chronologically out of order, 
when he says, and Jesus got into the boat and returned. But then here in verse 38, he's going to kind of go back towards the place where Jesus had not yet left. So it's chronologically out of order, but thematically in the correct order. Because now the focus shifts from the people and their fearful response to this man and his obedient response towards Jesus. And notice the response uh, in verse 38. The man from whom the demons had gone, were never told his name, begged that he might be with him. That is, be with Jesus. But Jesus sent him away. And he says this to the man as he's sending him away. Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. Now, if you're, if you're the man who's just been healed, this is the totally appropriate response to seeing Jesus heal you, save you, rescue you bodily from your oppression. Um, Jesus is fulfilling his ministry in this man, and this man is responding in obedience, in trust, in a desire to have further relationship, further learning, further tutelage at the hand of Jesus. This is a response of a man who is uh, spirit-empowered. He's, he's responding as, as one ought to, right? He's the good soil, responding in an appropriate manner to the message of Jesus, demonstrated by the works now of Jesus. And he's saying he wants to be with him. You can assume that that is to learn from him. Um, that's kind of implied when we're told that the man is sitting at the feet of Jesus. Uh, that is used commonly of a rabbi when he's teaching his disciples. So to sit at the feet of Jesus is to learn from him. And here the man is found sitting at his feet and wanting to stay with him. So he's likely desiring discipleship to learn more. A very appropriate, obedient response. And then you would think that Jesus would grant that kind of response. You would think that that would be something that Jesus would be totally on board for. But instead, we get a, we get a strange kind of response from Jesus that, that might cause us to, to be puzzled for a little bit, but it will resolve. Where Jesus sends him away. He doesn't allow him to stay. He doesn't allow him to learn. He doesn't teach him anymore. He sends him back, essentially, to the, to the region he's come from. And he says, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. Now, that response might seem strange, particularly because of the man's request to stay and to learn. But if you were to go back towards the other miracles where Jesus has healed someone, when he heals the leper, uh, when he, he heals the man who was on a sickbed and lame, he heals that man. Uh, when, he, when he healed other people, it is not uncommon for Jesus to then send that person essentially right back out into the context where they were. You remember, this is a totally consistent thing, even before Jesus. When John the Baptist is teaching people to repent and believe, the, the soldiers and the tax collectors are responding and saying, what then must we do to be saved? And he says, stay in your situation and maintain faithfulness towards God. And so he's not asking them to come and be his disciples. It's not a wholesale call for every single person. In that context, it's stay in your location and be faithful. And then here, the, the command to this uh, formerly demon-possessed person is essentially to stay and be faithful, to go back to his home, to go back to his city, to go back to his region, and essentially minister to those people, to declare to them how much God has done for them. And that command makes so much sense when you just consider the fact that these people have asked Jesus to leave. Jesus will leave, he'll go, but he's not leaving zero witness of him having healed and saved and rescued this person. He's actually gonna send primary witness number one into that territory, into that region, to do what witnesses do, which is to tell about what happened and to pro proclaim and to profess all of the saving power of Jesus. If you remember, uh, uh, maybe you're familiar with it in the book of Acts, 
uh, there's this man who's healed. He, he's brought before the high council and asked, you know, who did this? How did this happen? And uh, he causes quite a problem for the high priest because he is not backing down from his testimony about how he was saved and by whose power he was saved. And here you can imagine, we're not told kind of how the events unfold after this man is commissioned back out, but we are told that Jesus has commissioned him essentially to preach. And then the concluding, that second half of verse 39 tells us that he in fact goes away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. So he is uh, faithful and obedient to what Jesus has, has told him to do. And that language there that he goes away proclaiming, another way to translate that is just like in the book of Acts, sometimes it gets translated proclaiming, uh, sometimes it gets translated preaching. So he's going away preaching throughout the whole city about what Jesus has done for him. He's going to simply bear witness to all that he's seen and all that has happened to him. And you can imagine that this kind of long-term, faithful, persistent witness of this man and the plain testimony about his previous condition before Christ and his condition now in Christ will cause quite a great number of people to contemplate, to think, and to be challenged by the claims that he's making. You know, it's one thing for someone to say, I met a teacher who taught me good moral things. Or I met a man who was aware that I was unclean. And now I'm trying to get my act together. It's a totally another thing for someone to be so possessed by Christ, so possessed by his saving work, that he's going to be a wholesale contrasting witness of his previous life in his current life. It's the same kind of powerful witness that Paul bears in the New Testament, where he goes from literally killing the church and trying to squash it out of existence to now assisting the church in every single front of their missionary efforts. Now, this man here, by Jesus' uh, direct interaction and intervention, is commissioned to do much the same here in the territory of the Gerasenes. So he goes away proclaiming, preaching about uh, all that has happened. And notice uh, something else Luke has done. Jesus says to the man, go and declare how much God has done for you. But Luke tells us, not that he went and proclaimed to the whole city how much God had done. He says how much Jesus had done for him. Luke is a careful writer, he's clever, he's, he's calculated in his writing, and here he has once again told us a, a kind of hint or a claim at deity. This is from Luke's pen, because he tells us that in summary the man does go and preach and proclaim, but he's not preaching and proclaiming about God, at least not God in the same way that the Jewish people have understood him. He's preaching and proclaiming about Jesus, God's son, the Messiah, who, who is also God. It's a very complex Trinitarian kind of look at uh, theology. And here, uh, this man is articulating that Jesus really is God who did these things for him. And as we're reading the, the passage of, of these verses, and as, as readers, we're now been told of the two different responses and the events as they unfolded, we're left to wrestle much with the same kind of question of response. Uh, there's a man who encounters Jesus who responds in obedience and faith because of the encounter that he had. And there are people who observed what Jesus did, who heard about it, but who, who reject it. And uh, as readers, we're, we're kind of challenged to do the same thing uh, in the gospel. Do we respond to the commands of God, the stories of God, the work of God with, with fear, with rejection, with, uh, with uh, suppressing the truth of God's word? Or do we respond in obedience and essentially sell out towards God and towards faithfulness? You'll notice there's, there's no halfway option between these two. 
It's a wholesale rejection or a wholesale acceptance. There's no limping between two opinions. In Luke's mind, what he's challenging us with is the, the kind of black and white nature of the choice. It's not uh, a shade of gray. It's not a great many number of things that uh, we could do. It's not uh, to be okay with Jesus, but not to be obedient towards him. None of those things. You can either respond in fear and rejection or obedience and, and faith. And if you're the man, uh, it makes total sense. How could, you, how could you go back to your life of sin? How could you go back towards affliction and oppression and the desperate condition that you were found in before Christ? How could you return to that? It would make no sense. And of course, he would be foolish to do something like that, to be healed to such a degree and then to return back to his former ways. But notice, uh, because of the transforming work of Jesus, he doesn't do that. He's now uh, of clear mind, of sound conscience, of of uh, good reasoning, uh, and he responds appropriately by being obedient and responding according to what Jesus has done. Now, this draws up uh, kind of one more piece that's kind of underlying this story, which is that when you, when you first meet the man, we're told he's essentially severely afflicted, almost oppressed to the point where he can't even speak on his own behalf. The demons speak for him. And what's interesting about that is Jesus never waits for the man to indicate a response of faith before he, he heals him. He doesn't uh, wait for the man to seem sensitive towards him and then heal him. What you see instead is this really, uh, this really amazing thing where the man, incapable of responding in faith, incapable of uh, responding positively towards God, so enslaved, so uh, shackled, so bound by his oppression that he could not in any way respond favorably towards God, and, and Jesus moves to save that kind of a person from his condition. And we don't look at that and go, well, it's, it's strange. Why didn't you know, Jesus ask him for help? The obvious subtext of the story is that he, he would have said yes if he could have, but he can't because of his oppression. That's actually the, the same thing Jesus uh, and, and the Apostle Paul and others tell us about our own condition before the Holy God that because of our sin, because of our enslavement towards it, because of our uh, consonant, obstinate rebellion against him, that we are not of sound mind when dealing with God. We don't consider him on a neutral playing field, free and clear when we think. We, we think about him, as it were, through veiled and shackled wills, bound towards sin, enslaved and afflicted in that way. And he doesn't look at us and say, well, if we indicate faith, he responds in salvation. He has to reach completely across that chasm and save sinners unto himself. Because if he waits for a response, as if he were to wait for the response of this demon-afflicted man, there is no conceivable response that could be mustered. There's no way for this man to respond in any way favorably towards God. He's so deep in sin. And yet, Jesus does reach across the chasm, uh, unilaterally saving this person and then commissioning him out towards obedience, and the man responds in obedience. Notice it's, it's Jesus' work, then the man's faithful response towards Jesus, and then him commissioned out to go and be a faithful witness. And in that sense, while uh, he is demon-possessed, and he, there's many particular elements of his story that we could in no way relate to, this is an element of his story that is, it is a common experience for all who have faith in Christ. That there was no point in our time before Christ 
where we were looking at God with a, in a state of neutrality and uh, weighing our options. We were deceived in sin from the moment we entered this world. And we were shackled and bound in that enslavement towards sin so that we were not of sound mind, not of uh, capable wills, not, not reasonable people. If we were to be presented between the goodness of God and the enslavement and uh, desperation of sin, we would choose the desperation of sin, not because we want to, thinking logically, but because we're so broken in our wills that we can't help but not choose the enslavement. And God, in his rich mercy towards us, reaches across the chasm into the heart, renews the heart, and rescues us from our condition, and then commissions us out in faithful obedience. Now, we become aware of that process after the rescuing has happened, after the healing has taken place, when our, when our eyes are finally open to see what has taken place. And we certainly ought to, at that point, respond in faith and obedience and fidelity. But that does not mean that when we become aware of it is when the process had started. In fact, in, in this man's story, the process starts before he's able to even articulate what it would look like for him to be saved. And Saul of Tarsus is no different. His story is exactly the same. Blinded by his rage, blinded by his religious zealousy, and yet rescued from that and commissioned by God. It's no different with, with Nicodemus. It's no different with the woman who is a sinner. It is no different from anyone else that we encounter in Scripture because they are first blind to their condition and then rescued by God. And then they profess and testify to the rescue that has happened and respond in faith. So this man by no means can go back because he's now of sound mind. He is now of a renewed spirit, a renewed heart, and he's not going to go back to the tombs. One, because it doesn't make sense, and two, because that doesn't even seem appealing anymore. It's the same way sin is for a believer. Once you have been freed of your sin, once you have, once you have been uh, tasted the healing and the grace of God, while sin might still linger as an option and something that might from time to time appeal tempting, at the end of the day, the Christian summarizes looking at sin and saying that is ultimately unappealing to me because I, I know that there's something better out there. That's the response of a Christian. And that's the response of this man. He, he cannot go back to the tombs. He cannot stay there. Uh, he has to go and proclaim all that has happened to him. And that's because... Uh, uh, or that, and that message that he's preaching uh, is one of uh, faith and repentance and belief in God. It's the same one that John the Baptist preaches. It's the same one that the apostle will preach in the New Testament. It's one that hinges on the central work of Christ to save sinners unto himself. It's one that uh, God, through Jesus, does all of the saving work by atoning for sin, by rescuing sinners, by renewing sinners, by implanting faith in sinners, by causing them to walk in obedience. God monolithically does this work across the board, and we, in response to that, cannot help but preach. Uh, Paul would say in the New Testament, woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Woe to me if I do not proclaim the riches of his mercy. He can't help it because he has tasted and seen the goodness of God. And that response is, is one that I hope you as well can relate to. The, the knowledge of the former self, the, the tasted goodness and uh, rescue of God, and then the, the obedience and faith and love for God that follows, 
a rejection of sin, and a love for God. Not perfectly, but increasingly so. And if that idea is beyond foreign to your imagination, if that response seems so strange, no, 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 this is a response that this demoniac had, but I, I've never experienced something like that with God. That is uh, not something to, to turn a blind eye towards. Scripture tells us often that we receive faith as a gift from God and that our response to God is not one of, uh, of harsh, grueling obedience. It is a, a light and easy yoke, one that he gives us and that our affections carry us in because the affections are actually not really ours. It is God who is working in us to cause those affections and to cause that obedience. And so while that is not a permanent experience for a Christian, because we all struggle, we all have doubts, we all have moments of regression, Scripture does tell us that the, the general tone, the general trajectory of the Christian experience is one that would describe God as lovely and beautiful and the best possible good, and one that would describe their sin and their former enslavement to it as the grossest possible evil. And that when given a perfect choice, a sanctified choice, the Christian will look at that and say, I know what is good, I know what is better, and even if I sometimes don't do the thing I know I should do, that doesn't mean I don't know what is actually good. The conscience will convict, guilt will prevail, and that guilt will lead us to repentance and once again renewal and trust in God. And if there is no such response towards the awareness of sin, no such response towards the enslavement and affliction, um, then there has been no such sensitivity and awareness given. Imagine this man, unaware of an encounter with Jesus, never having responded to God, never having been giving that encounter. And where would he be found later after these events? He would be in the same condition, in the same enslavement, with the same rejection of the holy, because he would be in the same level of bondage. To taste and see the goodness of God, to recognize God as good and loving and holy, is itself evidence of the fact that God is bearing witness to our spirit of what he has done to us, what he has done for us, and what he has promised to complete within us. When we even get a glimpse of his goodness, it causes this kind of insatiable appetite within us to want to be with him, uh, to want to dwell in his presence, to want to learn at his feet, and to want to be sent out to do his bidding. That is a, a faithful, obedient response. And so the, the motif, the common question that Luke has been asking us, and that I have been asking you, and I will ask you again, who is Jesus, and how are you listening? When you listen to these words, recorded now some 2,000 years earlier, and you, you hear the stories, and you see the work that he does, and you see the responses of faith and rejection, where do you land in relation to this Christ? Do you agree with the assessment of the gospel writer? Or uh, are you still uh, in some manner of disbelief? He's going to continue to build his case. He's going to continue to argue. But for now, as we conclude our time, uh, he's leaving us with that same reflection moment, that pause and reflect. Which of these two responses is you? Which of these two responses describes your relationship to God? And for your sake and for your own good, I pray 
that it is the latter. Because the former is one that rejects the only possible rescue from their enslavement. Those people who reject Christ know not what they miss and will never be able to taste the goodness of what they've never had. And so I pray it is the latter, the one that sees God, sees his goodness, and cannot wait to proclaim that goodness for all the rest of eternity and even beginning now in this life for as long as the Lord may tarry. Let's pray. Father, you are a good and holy God, one who has moved in a magnificent way to cause salvation to occur in the hearts of your people. Lord, would you be merciful to us as we are uh, slow to listen, as we are slow to learn, as we are uh, a people who are constantly afflicted with our own uh, humanness, our own flesh, our own uh, sin nature. Lord, would you be patient with us? Would you walk alongside us? And would you give us grace as we work out our salvation? And Lord, as we uh, hear these words and we consider all that you have done in the life of this man, um, would you bear witness to our spirit about just how good you are, how, how lovely and how awesome and how magnificent are your works, how unsearchable are your riches, and how worthy of worship that is. Lord, would you uh, preach to our own hearts by means of your spirit about your goodness and your grace to us. We ask and we pray these things in your name. Amen.